This is Bonjour Chai, the As It Happens But For Judaism edition. I'm Avi Feinwald in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's podcast, we have the pleasure of hosting Mishi Harman of Israel Story, which is set to launch its new season, and Josh Liebline will help us understand the People's Party of Canada. So, Alana, we're uh, we're out of Rosh Hashanah. We're on to Yom Kippur. Yeah. How was uh, how was in person services for you? It was actually really nice when we showed up there because um, I went to like an outdoor service. Um, at the show that I went to, they had like five or six different minions, some indoors, some outdoors. So ours was in a parking lot in a tent. Um, and it was really packed within the tent itself. Some people were wearing masks. We kind of took a couple chairs, put them out of the tent under some trees to get a little bit of space. But it was the first time in so long that I'd been around so many people. Um, and it felt really heartwarming. Like it felt like some semblance of normality of normalcy. I can't even speak. I'm just waking up. I feel like I ate so much over the last few days that my my system is just like a giant piece of brisket or something. That's that's where I'm at. <laughs> I think this is why we have the fast of Gedalia, which is observed yeah, the day after totally. Rosh Hashanah to like purge all Cleanse. The, uh, cleanse, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really, really interesting going back to, I mean, I've been going to like services, but it, like daily services or Shabbat where you never- There's probably less people, right? 40 people, a lot less people. And there was yeah. probably, they did two services here back to back so that they can get up to 250 people in each service. Plus they had an outdoor tent for with the um, music, with the, the service piped in without a live person. So the people didn't want to be outdoors, but wanted to be part of a service, felt like they were there. I, I blew a ton of shofar for a lot of people a lot of places oh, went go nice. on tour you go what's your do you have like a record of how long your tequila gadola is do you know uh, it's been i mean not anymore i i used to be much better at it i i when i was in my young in my youth um i can get a good 20 seconds going you know but uh, i'm not mr you know super i don't do the circular breathing techniques that all the saxophone players can play for minutes at a time <laughs> i'm not the the miles davis of the shofar I, i'm passable Um, I'll take it. It was really, I have to say it was interesting, um, both from like a congregant and realizing a, how interesting it is to like be part of a large service the way you were saying, and Mm -hmm. also, um, realizing how much can be skipped and still feel like a a real service. Like a lot of people were like, because the whole Musaf service took an hour and a half with the shofar. And usually it takes literally twice as long. And people were like, well, why can't we do this every year? Right. You know, I, I, I think that people are going to want to have this notion of like, well, why can't we make it a bit shorter in future years? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they shortened it, it. Yeah, where I was, I don't think they shortened it. It was it was long. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, well, it wasn't, I mean, they had the early service for like the, the real hardcore yeah. people that started at yeah. 7.30. And then at 9.30, they invited like the people who just wanted the shofar and the musaf and stuff like right. that. Right. Oh, that's, that's um, a smart idea. I'll, Although I have to say, and you know, this is like really following up when we were talking about last week. Um, uh-huh. There are people that I realize, and I'd been talking to them because they were outside or I went to blow chauffeur for them, which was totally like a beautiful thing to do. Um, and I'm realizing that there are people that even though services are limited in number, they are requiring you to have uh, two vaccinations. You have to have a mask on. Um, and, you know, they're making sure the event, everything was done absolutely properly. And there's still people that don't want to have those services. And there are people having outdoor services. And there's still people that are still feeling afraid. And it started like, 
I don't know what to say about these people. And, you know, I was, I was trying to make some sort of an equivalency and I'm not sure it's a total equivalency, but help me out here. Like we had a hard time, especially in the beginning of the pandemic with the people that were willing to do anything and make all sorts of risks just so they can go to services. I don't know what to say about the people that are not willing to have any risk at all. Right. In, what, and what do you mean? Will not go to any, meaning there are people that are not going to take even a 2% risk. Oh, like they're right, just not going to show up. They're not going to show up. I'm, you know, and I'm like, I keep saying, what can you, we possibly do that will allow, will allow certain people to come? And I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to not make that equivalency, but if there are people that are willing to risk everything and then there are people that are willing to risk zero, right. I think that there's something there that like you have to live and mm-hmm. you, the same way we have to tell people that like you have to have your health. Right. And and don't risk your life in the middle of the beginning or in the early stages of the pandemic. When we don't know anything now that we know so much and we've made all of these mitigating factors to allow people to come to services and you still won't come. I think that says something about your spiritual life and, and what where you value it. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's for us to make those kind of judgments those kind of judgments, I feel like it's a very personal decision. And I mean, I guess it depends on what denomination you're from too, because if you're not Orthodox and you're okay using a computer on mm-hmm. Yontif, then there are lots of online streaming services from what I've heard. Right? For sure. For sure. But the people that don't, and then there are people like that that are still not coming to services. Yeah. Um, you I don't know. know. Like, I, I, I don't think it's up to us to make those those decisions but, for but then them. why didn't we say why didn't we say that in the other side with the like ultra orthodox communities that were having services when nobody else was doing it and say well it's not for us to make the decision they want yeah, to Yeah but that's a, a health risk life. that's different. <laughs> so this this like the health risk is so minimal you might as well not cross the street. Right if you're uh, you know I think that's a little bit of an over exaggeration. I mean, it's hard point? to compare I mean, the two extremes because one is like completely disregarding the rules entirely um to generalize and and then this is and one is disregarding science where the scientists are saying sure yeah that they're they're just as hesitant in the other direction and they're not listening right. to the scientists and the public health people that are saying this is safe it's okay fair enough i don't know it, it's really hard to say like i haven't really encountered many of those people so have you have you had conversations with people who don't yeah. feel comfortable and what are they saying yeah. what are the reasons for them they're like it's not safe for me it's not there there's still covid in the air there's still like you know it's still risky i'm not i'm not i don't feel comfortable they're afraid there's a lot of paranoia that got yeah. drilled into people from the early days that they aren't willing to let go of and and i think you have to like you know, the, the Quebec health minister uh, gave a, wrote a, a letter. Uh, my wife was telling me about it because she's the president of the Board of Rabbis. And he was basically saying, listen, COVID is here to stay. And we have to learn to live with it and not, you know, mm-hmm. totally, you know, we have to move on with our lives. And if we're not going to move on with our lives, then our spiritual lives are going to be just as bereft as the retail and the restaurant industries and the arts industries. And we have to encourage people to say, this is safe. You, sh- you should be coming. When, when you were going to services, did you require proof of vaccination to sign up? Yeah. I, or take yeah, a test absolutely. or anything? I because, didn't take a test, but you had to upload your proof of vaccination. Right. I heard about a service that was happening in like a small shul in Thornhill where they actually made you take one of those quick tests before even going to the service. I, I, I'd be okay with that. But at the service that I went to, because I didn't buy my own ticket... I just showed up there and nobody asked any questions. I am double vaccinated, but you know, there could have been people who weren't, who just said that they were. So I understand a bit of the hesitation and there is like the the strain. I'm not saying that I wouldn't go, but I understand. And I don't think it's up to us to push people to do things they're not comfortable with. And hopefully with time as you know, the cases do really lower because we are seeing uh, another wave happening. I think it's reasonable that some people are feeling hesitant. 
Yeah, it's, um, you know me, I'm always pessimistic and I'm always willing to like have the, the contrary take. This is my like, I don't know, we have to rethink this and we have to speak to those people that are that are really just as much on the other side because if you're not living your life, then it it's similar to me to like living your life too much and willing to say, hey, to do anything for God, right? If you're willing to do nothing for God and spirituality and your faith and your traditions and whatever, uh, you got to rethink some of those priorities also. But uh, that's just me. Anyways, um, before we get to the election, let's hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom design jewelry, along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person, and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Maxim Bernier's People's Party has been seeing a bit of a bump in numbers over the past week or so, and here to help us make sense of this is our own Josh Liebling. Josh, welcome back to the program. I am coming back from two days of radio silence from Rosh Hashanah. Uh, what have I missed in the world of the uh, Canadian election so far? Well, Ali, you have a good excuse for sleeping on this. Um, the rest of the Canadian punditry doesn't. But it looks like out of uh, out of nowhere, Maxime Bernier's PPC, the People's Party of Canada, is making a bit of a late-breaking shift uh, into the high single digits, sometimes over 10% in some polls. And I wanted to come on and talk a bit about what this may mean for the Jewish community because uh, there's uh, the PPC... It does have a bit more in common with the Jewish community than you may think. Uh, how so? <laughs> in what way? Can you expand on that? Well, I mentioned one PPC candidate last week, uh, David Freyheit, in, uh, in your writing. And um, the PPC has kind of um, picked up a lot of the green vote that has actually been collapsing recently. So they're kind of re-emerging as the preeminent uh, protest party vote. And they may end up with a couple of seats the same way that the Greens did before the last election. So we know that the Greens are, have been the party that has been focused up the most, ironically, on Jewish issues. They have a Jewish leader, and uh, the Israel issue has consumed them. But with the PPC, it's going to be a little bit different because they're a bit more populist, a bit more Trumpy, and the same sort of thinking that applied to the Trump years may actually be coming up here. I mean, by saying that, you're kind of implying the massive racism and xenophobia that comes out of the PPC. Uh, I saw these flyers that were going around Thornhill. Uh, Aren't you, you're in Thornhill, Alana, no? Have you seen these flyers? Yes. I have not seen these flyers, not flowers, (laughs) flyers. I have not. Uh, Josh, tell us about these flyers and what's going on with all of this. Well, one thing I want to make clear is that it's not clear that these flyers actually did come from the PPC. It does compare the Thornhill PPC candidate, Mr. Samuel Greenfield, to Melissa, and it does kind of attack her on her supporting the LGBTQ agenda, whatever that is supposed to be, mm. um, and says, and they're talking about how um, the, the flyers were actually, if you were looking at them, you would have thought that they came from a sort of a, a more religious standpoint. Actually, I'm pulling them up on my phone so I can read what it says. Um, don't worry about vote splitting. Do what's right and send a strong message. Hashem runs the world. So 
Does that sound like something coming from the PPC? I'm not sure. They don't seem to be that much of a religious party to me. Could be some random person affiliated with the PPC and or not. It's really hard to tell, but it's definitely right out of the populist playbook where they try to steal oxygen, as it were, by um, talking about hot-button issues, attacking people, and trying to basically claim that there's some sort of agenda perpetrated against them. So while there's no proof that this was the PPC campaign who did this, I want to be very clear about that, Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that would be past them or their people to do. How do you see this affecting things um, over the next week, if if at all? Well... you're going to see a lot, like the PPC has kind of crossed that threshold from being a cute little um, uh, curiosity to something that's actually people are actually getting scared of. Um, I have had dealings with Maxine Bernier. I actually uh, ran into him at a, at a CJPAC action party. I wrote about it for one of my doorstop postings. Um, so what you're going to get is a lot of, uh, you might be hearing out of these people, if you haven't been listening already, some strange statements about how vaccine passports are like the Star of David that uh, Jews would wear, would be forced to wear during Nazi Germany. And this is kind of ties into their whole idea that this is sort of segregating society. So that's the kind of like out there stuff you're going to hear from them. Wow. So you will be hearing more of that and focus on, uh, like, for example, they have a can't, the uh, well-known Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, who's running for these guys in the, uh, in the, uh, in this, London, Ontario, and uh, Mr. Emery's on record as just calling uh, Erwin Kotler a Nazi Jew because he happened to be the justice minister at the time. And I happened to have run into Mr. Emery and asked him about that. When I did that, he went into some sort of word salad rant talking about how Jews apparently couldn't plow the field, plow a field or something. Just some really, really strange stuff going on there. Um, but the thing about the PPC is I don't see them really having a massive breakthrough. I just see them overtaking the Greens and becoming the more protest party. You're going to see a lot of panicked uh, writing about this in punditry. Now, having dealt with the PPC over a long period of time and actually been opposed to Maxine Bernier's leadership run in the CPC, I know what who they are and I know what they traffic in. And mostly it's just grievance politics. I don't want to minimize the hateful stuff that they say from time to time. But I that's they're just seizing on anything that will see, that will uh, suck up oxygen in the room. So obviously you're going to say stuff to push your buttons and get a reaction. So, I mean, look, if... If the, C- if the PPC is so, the People's Party, Bernier, is so xenophobic, so hate-oriented, why do they seem to be constantly attracting so many Jews? Like, what's going on there? I mean, this is what you were mentioning a little while ago, Avi. There are Jews who are still swing voters and who are upset with the way politics are being done. Um, Bernier, I don't think he attra- he hasn't, his, well, his Jewish bona fides are not that great, he hasn't said he. It's the same sort of appeal that many Jews had with respect to Trump and other populist parties. They don't feel represented by the mainstream Jewish community. They don't feel main, they're represented in mainstream politics, and so they go over to these fringe populist parties. They think that they can get some more influence there. That they can have more of a more of a platform for people to hear whatever they have to say. Even though the people in the party may not have the may not some of the people in the party may not be all that warm to Jews. It's no different from uh, Jews who are affiliated with the Greens or the NDP. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see how people who say vote for vote your Hashem conscience wouldn't exactly go vote for the Greens, but um, it's really interesting to see them go for people that are uh, affiliated with a party that talk about, you know, Ern Kotler as a Nazi, uh, which like buff totally boggles my mind. Anyways. Yeah, sort of the confusing. It's supposed to baffle rational, right thinking people like yourself, Avi. It's supposed to make you, Ilan, I have these big. Big eyes like I saw you have over Zoom a little while ago. That's the intent. That's what the 
people are doing. Oh, many, many big eye reactions. Why, yeah, that's why yeah. I'm kind of used to it. So that's why I'm not as freaked out as it by people who aren't as familiar with it because I know right. they're just trying to get a reaction. So that is why I try not to be as panicked because that's right. what they want. They want to quote unquote trigger the libs. You may have heard that situation, that uh, that statement before. And so that's right. sort of like freaked out. Whoa, who are, who are these guys? Like you, you've seen this with hate groups. They try to imp- inflate their presence. They want to try to talk about how many followers they Twitter. They use yeah. social media that way, and that non anonymity, and that way they can kind of like confuse and be like, whoa, makes them seem bigger than they actually are. Yeah, no, it, I mean. Being in Toronto for like one week now, I'm reading The Star every day because we actually get a copy of it with the relatives that I'm staying with. And I was reading an article, I think it was this morning or or maybe yesterday, about how because of the pandemic, it's like bringing together, I think you you touched on this before, all these different people who have a reason to like fell about things. Like people who are like, I want my freedom or, you know, insert whatever complaint they have of choice about the pandemic. And now they're all kind of coming together and starting revolt. And it's crazy to me to see like a picture on the front of the star, this woman with like no mask on, just like waving this anti-vax sign. I'm like, what kind of world do we live in? It feels like back to the future too, or something where everything's all messed up, you know? Yeah, and you're going to see a lot more of it over the next couple of days. You may see things actually cross the line to outright violence, and there are people talking about what we're going to do about these protesters that have been attacking the prime minister with throwing... Yeah, yeah, with rocks. And this this being Canada, we never see things like this. So the fact that they're getting this reaction, the fact they have people like you scared, that's what they're going for. And they're not as concerned about what might happen as a result of this, and this is when things kind of go really off the rails like it did in Charlottesville or what have you craziness who's our uh, shadow jewish candidate to watch out for this week well i uh, haven't mentioned about uh, her i've haven't, i've kind of left the west coast out a little bit so i want to talk about uh, tamara cronus you might have seen her she's running actually against paul manley of the rain party and um anyone who's interested or is uh, has upset with what paul mr manley's had to say about israel might want to check out ms cronus's campaign very interesting we will all right. As always, Josh Liebline, um, check out his doorstop postings on the CJN.ca, the new revamp CJN.ca. Always a pleasure to have you. And hopefully we'll see you next week. We'll speak to you next week. And in other CJN election business, I'll actually be hosting an election debate along with the host of the CJN Daily, Ellen Bessner, this Monday night, September 13th at 7.30 p.m. Uh, we will have candidates from all the major parties. We'll be on. We'll debate issues of importance to the Jewish community. You can actually record and submit a question online, and we may use it in the actual debate debate. Um, to record your question and to register for this free online event, visit thecjn.ca slash debate. When Mishi Harman started Sipuri Israeli in 2013, he had no idea that not only would it spawn an English language version, but that it would become an international hit as well. The podcast is set to launch its sixth season and with us to chat is Mishi himself. Mishi, welcome to the show. Hi, Avi. Nice to be here. Thank you. So the first thing I want to get into right away is uh, the Canada and especially Montreal where I live uh, is very similar to Israel and Jerusalem in that it is very bifurcated in terms of the languages that we have. We have multiple languages. We have two languages in particular, English and French. And if you look at Montreal, the, the city is just as divided and split as Jerusalem in terms of people living in various places, in various sides of the city. Um, Of course, there's not as much uh, restrictions uh, on that, but that's a different discussion. And there are completely different media empires, right, in terms of print media, uh, TV, radio, uh, film. How do you see the stories that come out in the English version of the podcast versus the stories that are being told in the Hebrew version? And and what insights did that tell you about Israel and 
you know, your, your, the, the people you're telling the stories about? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, the, the real analogy here would be to um, content in Hebrew and Arabic rather than Hebrew yes. and, and English. Correct. Um, but since we don't produce, uh, at least not yet, uh, uh, content in, in Arabic, um, I guess the next best thing is to talk about, about our Hebrew How people and, tell and their English stories, show, yeah, right? in English. Um, so when we began this show a decade ago, um, we wanted to essentially create an Israeli version of this American life. The idea was to use the kind of uh, storytelling and uh, tools of journalism um, that, uh, that this American life use and apply them here in Israel, which is this extremely rich and diverse um, uh, society, as, as you were saying. And um, we, we began, uh, we started off, we didn't know really anything about, um, about radio, about uh, podcasting. None of us came from this world. Uh, we were all, all doing other things. And in fact, there was really no podcasting scene in Israel. We were essentially one of the very first podcasts in the country and the first one that became a national radio show. And early on, uh, what we wanted to do was um, allow Israeli listeners to get to know other Israelis that they might not encounter or meet or have meaningful conversations with on any kind of regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, and as you were saying, you know, we live in a very fragmented society, not only between, uh, between Israelis and Palestinians and uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians, but also within the Jewish community uh, between um, secular and religious and ultra-Orthodox and um, many other divides that exist. And um, what happens more often than not here, and I think this is probably true of almost anywhere, is that you surround yourself with people who are pretty much like you. Um, people who went to same, the same schools or whose parents work in similar jobs or who live in you know, the same neighborhoods. And, as a result, it's not that you don't see members of other groups, you see them all the time, because after all, it's a small place, but, um, but the, the, the real interaction, any kind of deep interaction is limited. Um, and you know, what happens more often than not is that you see someone belonging to a different social um, group uh, on the street and you immediately identify her or him and uh, you, know, you take in what they have or don't have on their head or what clothes they're wearing or what color skin they have and you place them in a box or in a bucket and you say, oh, well, that person is X. Right. And, I, and I know a lot about X, right? I know, I know what that means to be, to be X. I know what you have for dinner and I know how many kids you have and I know what you, know, you did or didn't do in the army or what you think about the gay pride parade or what party you vote for. And within a split second, uh, we construct this entire narrative, this entire story in our mind um, about, about who that person is. And, you know, if I've learned one thing from doing, doing this now for, for 10 years, it's, um, how, how rarely that story is accurate. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so what we tried to do with the Hebrew show early on was, uh, to allow listeners, um, to, to do something that they don't get to do in real life, which is to listen, listen to stories of people, um, from other groups. And we thought that, you know, by eliminating the visual element as one does with a podcast or radio show, um, we, would, um, we would give them this sort of grace period, a short grace period, maybe a minute, maybe 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, if we're lucky, 
um, in which they wouldn't be able to pinpoint who that person they're listening to really is. And they'd actually mm -hmm. listen. And once we, once we, uh, we started airing um, our show, that was exactly the reaction that we got from listeners again and again and again. It you know, it was variations on the theme of people would say, I'm 65 years old, I live in Yokneam, and last night while listening to Israel's story, to Sipur Israeli, uh, was the very first time in my life that I actually heard the story of an ultra-Orthodox woman from Tzfat or a uh, Bedouin teenager from Hura or a Russian immigrant who works as a uh, night uh, watchman at a parking lot in Nashdod or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so... For us, that was tremendous because we thought, well, we're allowing people to practice their muscle of, of empathy, mm -hmm. something, something which we don't actually get to do very frequently. Yeah, that's brilliant. It really is. I didn't even think of that as an aspect of podcasting because I was going to ask, like, what makes it different, you know, rather than doing it on TV as a documentary series. But I think your answer makes so much sense and is so necessary with everything that's going on. Um, I, I'm curious, when you put out the English version, how did that affect the American listeners? Like what kind of reactions did you get? Was it similar to the Israeli reaction? So interestingly, um, several years later, we decided to start producing in English as well. And, um, and we thought that this was a piece of cake. We thought that this was you know, the easiest task yet because we didn't have to you know, re rewrite the stories. The story, we already knew what the stories were. We just had to translate them. We had to go back to the same characters that to re-record, you know, um, if for if the first time around we interviewed them for hours upon hours upon hours to sort of discover what the story was. Now we already knew what the story was, and we almost knew what lines we wanted them to say. And we could, we're not we're not uh, actors here, so we weren't feeding them lines, but we could ask them questions that would elicit the exact right. answers that we that we wanted, and you know, would be very easy. Mm -hmm. So we thought that this task was going to be a relatively simple one. And boy, were we uh, wrong, um, because not only did we discover that stories change and often change quite dramatically when people are telling them in a, in a language which isn't their mother tongue, or even if they are fluent in English, just in another language, um, but also, um, we discovered that the kinds of stories that our audiences uh, wanted to hear were quite uh, different. And, um, and also the kind of stories that they didn't want to hear were quite different. Um, and this is perhaps says something interesting about, you know, um, about American and Canadian audiences um, and their perceptions of Israel and the kind of Israel that they want to um, mm encounter in listening to a show called Israel Story. Um, we discovered early on that there was less tolerance. Israel Story is, a, is, a, is an apolitical show, meaning right. that, uh, yeah. we, we, try, we try our best to avoid being yet another voice in the cacophony of voices about the, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the occupation and stuff like that. It's not that we don't tell stories of Arabs or Palestinians. In fact, we tell a lot of stories of Arabs and Palestinians, but uh, we try to make them human interest stories and not really about the, uh, the political or geopolitical situation here. Um, but at the same time, we realized that um, our listeners and perhaps even to, I, I don't wanna say this definitively because I'm, I'm not sure I have data to back this up, but I, I have a sense that Canadian listeners were even 
even more so uh, than American listeners, less interested in hearing stories that presented Israel in, you know, more critical uh, light. I'm not now talking specifically about the about the occupation or or the Israeli Palestinian conflict, but just in general. I mean, yeah, there was a, there was, sounds about right. There was, a, there was a sense that people wanted a wholesome, right, uh, like a positive. Positive only. They, they want you to be a tour guide and showing you how wonderful Caesarea is and how cute the, the falafel stand that everybody goes to is. And yeah, they, and, they and, wanted it to. They, the North American imagination of Israel. What you seem to be saying is this: you know, uh, you know, everybody dances the hora in the fields, all the chalutzim at night, and in the day they work the fields and they send us oranges. Right. right. I, I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify it. There, there are a lot, a lot of North American listeners who are extremely sophisticated about what's going on in Israel and yeah, have a very, very sure. realistic view of what's going on here. And for so sure. are, are there people who are stuck in some sort of, you know, post 67 uh, kind of fantasy? Of course. But I would say the majority of people are, are, are not um, still you know, one of our most popular episodes um, in English was a, a story that we told about the backstory of writing Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, uh, Jerusalem of Gold, mm-hmm. um, which, um, you know, here probably would have been seen as something a little bit out of touch with kind of, we didn't air it in, in Hebrew, that, that episode. Interesting. Um, because here, first of all, it's a pretty well-known story. Second of all, it might be seen a little bit as outdated or something like that. But in America, in, in America or North America, I should say, I, I should be careful in this uh, conversation. But in, in North <laughs> America, um, you know, that episode was very well received because it did touch on some sort of um, uh, cultural um, common common kind of understanding of, of Israel and uh, and. Um, I, I, you know, I think that again, over if there's the one years, song that that North Americans know in Hebrew, it's Yerushalayim uh, Shel right. Zahav, right? Right, right, right. Um, and you know, it also just to answer your to continue or answer your question, Alana, in in in, in a slightly different way. It also, um, to a certain extent, dictated the stories that we could tell from here because. Um, while our English language show doesn't only feature English speakers, um, it largely does. And that mm-hmm. means that you're telling the story of a, cert- of a certain um, segment of society here um, and, and not telling the stories of other segments of society. Um, mm. So we have, we were very meticulous um, and conscientious about sort of our own blind spots. So we keep very detailed logs of who's getting airtime and who's not getting airtime on Israel, both on Israel story, both in terms of gender and age and socioeconomic status and education and stuff like that. And, and, you know, unsurprisingly, we see that in the English show, at least um, we're interviewing a more educated, um, more Ashkenazi, um, um, crowd than than we perhaps would be in in Hebrew. There are parallels to that. That that's one of the parallels I would say with the Canadian 
media or Canadian stories with English and French is that the oftentimes the French uh, Canadian French feel aggrieved because their stories aren't heard and so the rest of Canada doesn't really understand Quebec and a lot of it is because many Quebecers outside of Montreal don't speak English and so their voices are not heard across the rest of the country. It's mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah. fascinating uh, what you're describing. It's like you're doing a social experiment by accident of Jewry in Israel and then in the diaspora. I'm wondering, um, as you've worked on this podcast, I'm sure it's evolved a lot since you came up with the idea in 2011. Have you had any specific revelations about Israel for yourself or for anyone on your team uh, that that surprised you or shocked you uh, about the country that you live in from doing all of these different stories? Do you have any particular one that stands out in your mind? For sure. I would say that the greatest um, lesson that I've learned over the last decade of, of uh, leading Israel's story is um, how different um, life is within a small country um, like Israel. And, you know, I thought that, well, I understood what life was like here, right? I, I thought that I had a pretty good, good idea of, of the questions people are asking themselves, the things they're interested in, the culture they're consuming, uh, their daily routines, and so on and so forth. Because I thought, well, after all, I'm Israeli. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I know I understand my life, or I, I I hope to understand my life. So, so how different can it really be? And if I've learned one thing, it's that it is radically different. So, you know, what your life looks like if you're an ultra orthodox, um, you know, nineteen year old yeshiva boy in Bnei Brak, um, is so radically different than what your life looks like if you're a nineteen year old. Um, a Palestinian girl living in East Jerusalem, which is so different from what your life looks like if you're a uh, kibbutznik living in Emek Israel or a uh, Ethiopian, uh, uh, you know, second generation Ethiopian living in, in, in Yerucham or whatever it is. I mean, re really the, the, the way you perceive reality is just fundamentally different. And, um, you know, I, I, I often used to, used to, um, to, to see election results in Israel. And I would say like, who are all these people who are, who are voting in ways that are so different than, than the way I vote? And, and sort of where are they? I don't even see them, right? I mean, it's staggering to me always that, you know, obviously the majority of the population votes for parties that I don't vote for. So, uh, so, uh, so I thought to myself, like, who, who are these people and, and how come I'm not meeting them? Because I, everyone I kept on meeting was basically some sort of carbon copy of myself, right? I mean, right. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, maybe in the army I'll meet them, but the army is, is not really the melting pot that it was, uh, that it was sort of imagined to be by Ben-Gurion because you get into certain units and certain people get into certain units and others get into other units. So yes, you might meet people that you hadn't met till, till then or kinds of people, but it's, it's not really that, that much of a melting pot. And, you know, I thought, uh, well, uh, maybe uh, driver's ed courses here are, are the real melting pot because there's like a point system. If you have some sort of traffic violation, you get these negative points. And if you accrue enough of these negative points, then you have to like take a, 
sort of remedial driving course. And since, since everybody accrues these points, I thought to myself, well, maybe that's where I'll meet these people. And, and it was true. <laughs> I, I, I did, I did meet, you know, uh, I don't know, Shas voters or whatever in those, in that context. But, um, but the, uh, the, um, the, the sort of most basic, um, experience of, of working on Israel story has been that it has allowed me to get to sort of step out of my own little bubble, my own little social bubble, which is mm. obviously mm. limited by my own circumstances in my own yeah. life. You know, I was born into in a specific city, in a specific neighborhood, in a specific, into a specific family and stuff like that. Um, and, 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 and get to understand the real, um, multiplicity of, of lives and ideas and realities yeah. that exist here. I've, I've always felt every time I go to Israel that um, one of the reasons why these solid, these various groupings live and keep separate is um, food is one of the great uniters, right? People will often meet over very famous or popular food places, uh, you know, restaurants, food stops, right? and uh, Haredi society, ultra-Orthodox society in Israel decided long ago that the kosher isn't kosher enough for most of them. And they've created their own separate level of kosher, even though technically most every restaurant in Israel is kosher. Um, and they don't eat with the other Israelis who are Jewish themselves. And so there's there's none of that mixing and mingling over the the salad, the salatim, right? At the falafel place where you're stuffing your, your, plate, your plate, it's you don't have that connection. You're not sitting and sharing that. And so you end up with much greater separation in society as a result of that. And that that could have been potentially a great uniter, but it ended up not, uh, not panning out. Yeah, that's, that's my that's theory. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's definitely true in terms of uh, the divide between ultra-Orthodox. I mean, you ask and, you, how often do you go else? to a place that is like Mahadran kosher, that is like super kosher? you're not that often probably going to a place. I mean, it's not that you're avoiding those places, but you're not particularly looking for those places. Yeah, I have ultra-Orthodox cousins who um, uh, uh, invited me not long ago to um, to, to a meal on, on Shabbat, and, uh, and I asked what I could bring, and I thought that they were going to say nothing because, you know, my, my, my house isn't kosher enough for mm -hmm. them. Um, and to my surprise, he said, well, you can bring some, uh, some, something for the kids to nosh. So I said, oh, okay, well, what, what, what should I bring? And he said, Bamba. Oh, oh, bring whatever you want. Just make sure it has the, fa the following shirim, uh, which are right. sort of stamps of, uh, of, of, of various different uh, kosher author rabbinic authorities. And, uh, and he sent me this PDF with six different shirim, uh, mm -hmm. and I, and I, and I asked him, do, do they need to, do they need to have all, all six, all, all six or, or is just one okay? And he said, no, no, one's okay. But they were such specific kishirim that I had to go to like many, many different supermarkets yeah. uh, around town to find these specific kishirim. Um, so so, you, so brought yeah. up, you brought up elections before. And uh, here's a question that I want to ask you as a human interest question. Which, uh, this is not a politics. You're apolitical, but... Um, if you are an Israel story, you know, I mean, I, I, host, I myself, I myself am not a political. <laughs> the show itself, a, anyways, yes. but maybe we can help, you can help us uh, think about this. So um, if I was the host, I'd be asking you this on, on Canada, Israel story, right? Um, we're going through an election right now in Canada, and it's an election that universally most people will tell you nobody wants. It's an election that the ruling party decided to call because they thought that they can take a minority government and turn it into a majority government. This is a story that you've heard in Israel many times. 
Um, and people are starting to get disillusioned about this process, about the nature of, you know, elections. You guys have just gone through, what, four elections in two years. Um, right. How do you, as a person, as a voter, as a part of the process, not lose faith in the process, in the system of democracy, when you see that there are systematic or systemic problems um, within the system, what would you tell me as a Canadian voter, um, you know, how to not lose faith? Because we saw that Israelis went back to the polls time and time and time again, even though the chances of a change happening were so slim and that things were likely going to remain the same. What, what, what do you tell me as a, as a voter, as a participant in the democratic process? What have you learned as an Israeli? Yeah, Israel's a small place. There's a real palpable sense that any given administration or in, in, or in other words, your, your own vote can really impact your life in some sort of immediate way, um, which perhaps is, is a little bit more abstract in large, in large democracies like Canada or the US. It's true that we have a relatively high uh, uh, participation rate in, in elections. I'm always surprised that it's not higher. I wonder like who are the people who uh, who say like, oh, I, I can't trouble myself to go and vote. I mean, we, I, I don't actually know the figures, but I think we're roughly 70% of people go, go to vote mm -hmm. uh, on any- Somewhat any, similar to Canada. Any election day. We, we do have a high uh, voting uh, rate, and I, I think that it does have to do with the fact that you, there's a real sense that, uh, you know, your vote, your vote matters. Do you think there's something about um, the fact that Israelis really are tied up with their identity, their identity is tied up with who they vote for, similar to Americans, less so than what I would say in Canada, but you find that, you know, the, the, the Likud voter is really a Likudnik, and the, the Shasnik is really a Shasnik, and, uh, and people really feel like they have to represent whatever fringe party or large party they have. Well, the Israeli uh, political system is a multi-party system. So, uh, so you have same, uh, same here in Canada. Yeah. So you have uh, all kinds of um, sort of identity politics going on and you have uh, a lot of people who don't really care about, uh, about, um, I don't know, let's say the, the Israeli Palestinian issue at all, but are extremely committed to voting uh, for their party because they belong to a certain social group. Uh, you know, their rabbis tell them to vote for a certain party. So that's what they do. They vote for that party or, or, or it's not only the Orthodox, it's, it's all kinds of, all kinds of groups that, you know, feel as if they're, that they want their representation. So I'm going to jump in. I stole Melissa's old line. Uh, and take it back to the podcast. Avi really wanted to talk about politics with you, <laughs> but um, I'm curious, just before before we wrap it up, I have two quick questions for you. Um, on your podcast, uh, do you have a favorite episode that you've done? And then unrelated to your podcast, what is your favorite podcast that you're listening to right now? <laughs> so um, as to our own um, favorite, my our own, my, my favorite podcast of our own episodes. We just released episode 67 in English. Um, and in some very fundamental way, I feel like each one of them, each one of those 67 episodes was like a child. You know, I, we work on episodes for a very, very long time. We follow characters for months and in certain cases, even for years. Um, you know, every episode goes through countless drafts and uh and by the time it gets released into the world you know i've heard i've heard each one hundreds of times 
So um, literally, that's that's not like a figure of speech. So it's it's really it's really always very hard for me to choose, and therefore my sort of go-to answer on that question is uh, always that like I, I'm I'm most uh, most um, interested in what the last thing I worked on and the last the last the the very last episode we released just uh, yesterday was our first episode of the season in which we took our entire team of producers to the Jerusalem YMCA, which is this oasis of um, coexistence and uh, different groups meeting each other and mingling together in the kindergarten and in the sports center and uh, um, the hotel and so on and so forth. And we spent an entire day there just talking to patrons, to staff, to kids, to people working out. And what I think the result is, uh, what, what I think we, the results became was a collage of, of what Jerusalem in all of its sort of difficulty and different layers sounds like. Um, and added upon that is sort of an institution trying to regroup after a year and a half of being closed for COVID and we had just, the day we spent there was June 7th, 2021. So it was about, I think 10 days or two weeks or something after the end of the last cycle of violence here. Um, and uh, so that that ended up being sort of, uh, as, as you might expect, that ended up being a, a major theme. Um, so I would say at the moment, that, that, is, that is my favorite episode. If we talk next week, it will probably be our <laughs> next episode. Um, I listen to many podcasts, as you can imagine. Um, of course, to many of the podcasts that got us into, uh, into the podcasting world, The Moth and uh, Radiolab and 99% Invisible and uh, This American Life, big fan of Jonathan Goldstein, some Canadian uh, Montrealer and his heavyweight uh, podcast. I also, as everyone, have my own sort of idiosyncratic interests. Um, so I listen to all kinds of esoteric things about archaeology and about basketball trades and, you know, whatever, things that just happen to interest me. Now that we're in season, <laughs> it's it's sort of Podcast listening goes in, in cycles. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're listening to your own episodes hundreds of times, where do you find time to listen to all these podcasts? <laughs> right, right. So, I, I had a professor in graduate school that said when he was writing, he would never read anybody else's work because A, he didn't have time and B, he wanted his voice to be his voice. And uh, Right. It's always a difficult thing. I mean, when you're, when you're deep in production and you listen to a podcast, it's often difficult to just enjoy yeah. it as a listener and instead of thinking like, oh, you know, they brought the music in a bit too <laughs> early or, you know, they really should have raised that sentence, you know, by, by three dBs or, or whatever it is. But, but I, I tried to sort of disconnect and, and just enjoy it as anyone would, listen, would enjoy a podcast. So uh, usually after the, our main segment, I bring in a, a rabbi for a, a short word of wisdom of the week from across Canada. Um, what I'd like to do, if you can close us off, um, instead of having a rabbi come on, um, is there, we're right in the middle of the, the Chagim, right? The Yamim Noahim, the days of awe, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Is there, a, is there a moment of transformation, a moment of lesson that you learned from your 67 episodes or even the more from the Hebrew side about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur that uh, you found inspiring for, for your own Judaism 
um, as an Israeli or you know however you define uh, that you would want to share with everybody um, around this time? Wow. Um, so I'm definitely no rabbi. Um, I am, and, uh, so don't worry. I think that in some fundamental level, what I've learned over the course of all this, all, all this uh, creative project is on the one side, how, how, as I was saying earlier, fundamentally different we really are from each other and based on our own circumstances, which often have little to do with anything that we ever did for ourselves or, or chose. Um, and then at the, at the same time, how, and I realized sort of the, the contradictory nature of this, but how, how similar we, we really are in, in fundamental ways that um, we're really motivated by the same kind of passions and jealousies and feelings of love and, and, and hate and, uh, and, and friendship and loyalty and stuff like that. And, uh, and there's something, something deeply humanizing about that to realize that uh, it doesn't really matter if you're rich or poor or, or Palestinian or Israeli or live in Elat or in, or in Kiryat Shmona, but there's, there's something there that uh, can recognize yourself in, in, in other people. And uh, I think that's why people also like listening to the show because they can recognize themselves in, 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 or variations on themselves in, in other people. Beautiful. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that well, that's, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you could since. <laughs> well, here, what I, the one, the piece I would add to that is that to me, what you just said is the humanist version of Unitana Tokef, right? The, uh, the idea that on Rosh Hashanah, everybody gets judged and everything happens, but everybody's passions and everybody's decisions and everybody's end product is all the same. And we're all human. And that's, you know, one can take at it from from the God level from above, or one can look at it from a human level flat across and, and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the flattening of human society. And that's what Israel story absolutely does for Israel, I think. So there you I go. Thank you and we had a rabbi it. sermon in the end. <laughs> thank God. Our thank local God. podcast rabbi, Rabbi Avi Feingold. Mishi, thank you so much um, for coming on uh, Israel Story. Its sixth season has just launched. Um, check it out at israelstory.org. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, we'd love to have you on if there's uh, another Canadian angle in the future. And uh, maybe we'll uh, do some sort of a crossover episode with some of the Canadian Israelis uh, with at some pleasure. point in some way. Um, great to talk to you and uh, thanks so much it was a real pleasure Alana we're at the point in our program where we like to share our nachas of the week something that gives us joy and makes us feel good about our Judaism and our Canadianness and all the lovely wonderful stuff that comes between those things what's your nachas of the week Alana I'm going to do a shameless plug uh, TIFF starts today, and I wrote a little piece about the top six Jewish films that are premiering at the festival. Um, I'm excited because it's my first time living in Toronto during TIFF. I have to start going through the times and seeing what I'm going to be able to attend uh, in person or virtually. Uh, but I think it's it's super exciting, and there's a lot of really great films. Dear Evan Hansen is one of my favorite musicals of all time, and they just did a movie adaptation. Um, and, and lots of Jewish people involved, Jewish lead, Jewish writer of the original musical. One of the musical uh, composers is also Jewish. So even though it's not Jewish content, it has Jewish written all over it. And that's the one I am most excited about. What's your analysis this week? I, I, 
related to that, my family is really excited for the uh, Apple TV launch of Come From Away, which has a Jewish hook in it as well. Ooh, coming that, out tomorrow. Is that happening? It's, uh, it's wow. Being, this, they did us the way they did Hamilton, which they filmed us. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the stage like the version. the stage play. The stage play of it. Um, they're oh, all no uh, way. looking forward to that one, uh, which apparently is out tomorrow. Um, but uh, cool. yeah. Uh, I like the Newfoundland connection and the music in that one, but... Uh, the music is great. I still haven't seen the full production, but I've listened to the soundtrack many times. Yeah. Good to know. I didn't know about that. I did my first seeing of a real play after seeing the stage version of it when I saw Springsteen on Broadway a few weeks ago. I was in New York for one day. Did I tell you about this? Wow. That was weird uh, being no. shoulder to shoulder, right? You're in... The, I mean, they really were strict, required double masks, uh, required double vaccination, required masks during... Masks. <laughs> while seated. Um, but I'm a huge Springsteen fan. And yeah. I was in New York for one day and I got to see Springsteen on Broadway and I'd only seen it on Netflix wow. before. This was like, it's in a tiny yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah. Transcendent, Ugh. really religious experience, really like emotional, big, I big deal. I cannot wait. <laughs> To be back in the theater. But but sitting shoulder oh, to shoulder with a thousand strangers. Oh, like, wow. Very That's, strange. I don't know how I would feel about that. We'll see. I have tickets to a show coming to Toronto um, in February, but we'll see if it happens or not because they're coming in from the US. It's from another podcast. Um, oh my God. I am blanking right now. Smartless. Oh, um, okay. with Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes. They're doing like a live tour of their podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what's my favorite podcast. Uh, so I got tickets to that. But we'll see w- whether it comes through or not based on how COVID goes in the of winter. Course. And stay tuned in 2022 for the live tour of Bonjour Chai, of course, coming across Canada. Uh, we'll be barnstorming, hopefully. You, me, and whoever our new host is. Right, Alana? You're, you're down for that? Okay, let's do it. Why not? Coming to the JCCs around you. Um, anyways, my Nachas of the week. Uh, Yom Kippur is coming up. Um, f- the, the obvious connection that I always think about with the High Holidays, uh, with Leonard Cohen, of course, um, he of blessed memory and of Montreal fame, is the famous song that he translated, that he adapted from the High Holiday Liturgy, Who by Fire, and it always, you know, comes up around here. But to me, the, the bigger, more profound, interesting connection, uh, or not as heralded, and you can find the story online uh, in multiple places, is that uh, during the Yom Kippur War, he was so moved and really so touched by what was going on in Israel, and he felt the need to help out and to do something, that he actually went to Israel to entertain the troops in the Sinai Desert. Um, And that story is available online. There is uh, photographs of it. There's even footage that I saw at the Leonard Cohen exhibit, which was at the uh, Montreal Contemporary Art Museum, which is now in the Jewish Museum in New York, or went. It's it's on tour wherever now, and I think that there is footage of him performing in the desert uh, with the soldiers around, and it's really uh, like it was a Yom Kippur miracle, right, in the, in the war sense, but also seeing this, you know, Canadian who felt the need to say, I, I got to do something, and this was his way of contributing to, to doing something for the, you know, for the Israel cause at the time. So uh, check out that story. It's a really cool story. Leonard Cohen and the Yom Kippur War. Very cool. I'm going to have to check that out. Um, Something for our listeners to be aware of, the CJN is now offering admission into the CJN circle. So what does that mean? It means if you sign up, you get home delivery of the quarterly magazine, you get exclusive weekly emails and invitations to live and virtual events. You can check all of that out at the cjn.ca slash circle. All uh, the details to get involved. 
thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, September 9th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave a comment and a rating, though, on the platform of your choice. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Ilana Zakon. <laughs>